portion of scripture on which tonight's teaching is based comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Tonight we're reading verses 23 through 33, which reads as follows. It says, that same day, this is Tuesday of Holy Week, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh brother. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, Whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. And uh, we're going to break the teaching tonight into four points. So I'm going to leave you without an introduction. We'll just go right into four different points here tonight. We're going to see the test from the Sadducees that we walk through. See the response that Jesus gives them to their test. We're going to see underneath the surface what's actually the real issue here. And that will help us understand what is the real lesson attached to this text. Okay, so the test from the Sadducees, the response from Jesus, the real issue, and the real lesson. First of all, the test from the Sadducees. I mentioned it's Tuesday of Holy Week. And the Pharisees, who are the ones that Jesus is regularly, they're like the main antagonists that he faces in the Gospels. And the Pharisees have already been put down that day, Tuesday of Holy Week, because they thought they had a test that would get Jesus to trip up, and it didn't work. It was that famous test of paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus gave the famous line of, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And he humbled the Pharisees and he looks like a genius. And all of the crowd is completely astonished by the brilliance and the authority of the teaching of this man. Well, it just so happens that the Sadducees, who we don't hear interacting with Jesus nearly as much in the Gospels. And that's partially because there's fewer of them. And that's partially because they were such a kind of high level of society that they probably didn't want to waste their time and dirty their hands with an uneducated Galilean teacher who they perceived as no threat to them. And yet, by Tuesday of Holy Week, it is undeniable the influence and the impact that Jesus is having in Jerusalem. Every single person in the city knows exactly who this guy is and what his claims appear to be. And if the Pharisees can't get the job done, well, the Sadducees will come in and they will be the ones that squash this bug. Okay? But who are the Sadducees really? Uh, you, say, you might say, well, I have enough trouble keeping apart, you know, what exactly are the Pharisees. The Sadducees, it, it's not... It wouldn't be completely accurate to say they're the exact opposite of the Pharisees, but that's actually not a bad place to start when characterizing them. Uh, if you remember, the Pharisees are actually, they are sort of the pillars of the community. They are good, moral, church-going folk. They are blue-collar, they are middle-class, and theologically speaking at least, they are moralistically conservative. That is in contrast to the Sadducees. The Sadducees are kind of aristocratic, wealthy, they're super educated, 
And they have inherited the priestly class and therefore they are functioning more as clergy. In fact, at this point in history, they have the uh, seat of the high priesthood. They also have the majority of the seats in the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body over the time. Uh, and as I mentioned, the, the, whereas the Pharisees were kind of like your moralistic conservatives, theologically speaking, the Sadducees were your relativistic liberals. And what I mean by that is they did not accept most of the Jewish scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures, what we consider the Old Testament, they only accepted as somewhat authoritative the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And so they wouldn't have perceived any kind of really binding spiritual lessons to come from the other books like a a Job or a Daniel or an Isaiah or a Psalms. In other words, they're, they're ethically Jewish and they're ethnically Jewish, but they're not entirely doctrinally Jewish. And because of such, they also don't hold to many of the main doctrines of the Jewish faith. They do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And for that matter, most scholars will suggest they didn't believe in much of any afterlife at all. They do not believe in angels or for that matter, any real realm of spiritual being. And therefore, they do not believe in a coming Messiah who will usher in a coming kingdom And they certainly do not believe in a coming judgment day on which the Son of Man and the Son of God will judge all humanity. They're theologically liberal in that regard. And because they hold these positions, they think they uh, have a great test for Jesus that he's not going to be able to unravel. They come to him and ask him a hypothetical question about marriage. Now, in order to understand their test, and it's a good one, But in order to understand their test, you have to understand the Jewish principle of of something called the Leveret Law. Leveret Law is something um, built into the Old Testament Mosaic Code in order to help make sure that all the people of society were provided for, including the widows. Here's what it says. You have to actually go all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, it says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her and the first son that she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is a very weird sounding practice to modern Western people. We don't operate this way and I'm not saying that we should, but what you really got to keep in mind is in the ancient world you don't have social security you don't have welfare. And so what God is doing is he's building into the Israeli system a way to take care of people like widows. So you got to remember back in those days, uh, not only is healthcare worse, so people have higher inclination of dying young, you have more frequent and more dangerous wars. Uh, So the idea of becoming a widow at an early age was not at all a, a foreign idea. It was not unusual. And also what you have to keep in mind is in patriarchal societies like this one, you don't have, the land is only owned by men. Now I'm not saying that you should like this or agree with it, I'm just saying this is the way society functioned at that time. And if you therefore could not own any land in an agrarian society, your land was your only possible way of producing any wealth and giving any provision for your families. And so what God designed is when the Israelites moved into the promised land, he divided up that promised land amongst the 12 tribes. And each of the tribes divided that land up amongst the families within those tribes. The Israelites were not allowed to sell their plot in the land which was not only their stake in their inheritance uh, in the promised land, but it was also their means, their 
God-given means of providing for their family moving forward. So, okay, what happens if you live in a society where only men can possess land, and land is, generally speaking, the only way to produce wealth, and you have a woman whose husband dies, and she cannot hold on to the land, what do you do? How does she continue to get provided for? According to the Leverett Law, the husband of the deceased, excuse me, the brother of the deceased husband, the widow's deceased husband's brother, would take her in marriage and produce a male offspring or seek to produce a male offspring and then the family's inheritance and their plot of land would go through that line. See, it was, again, you got to think, in a, in a system with no social security and a system with no welfare, it is God providing mercy for, he's always looking out for the people in any given society that might be particularly disadvantaged. He's looking out for the widows here. And so what the Sadducees then do is they play off that law. And they say, okay, hypothetical situation. We know uh, this guy and this woman who are married. And the guy dies. And okay, his, his brother is supposed to take this woman as a wife, and he does. And then that guy dies. And so she takes the next brother, the third brother, uh, as her husband. And there's no male heir being produced within this relationship or anything like that. And then that guy dies. And first of all, I have no idea who this black widow spider of a woman is who is just like a buzzsaw cutting through man after man after man. By the time that fourth brother is rolling up, you have to believe he is just trembling as he's asking her to, marry, to take it, her hand in marriage. But she, she burns through seven, seven husbands, okay? And it's a preposterous, it's an intentionally preposterous example because the Sadducees believe that the idea of the resurrection is preposterous. And so they say, all right, they all die. There's no male heir. Uh, The woman dies at the resurrection. This whole resurrection thing that you believe in. Whose wife will she be? There's seven brothers. Whose wife will she be? It's a great question. And Jesus has a better answer. And actually, there is a ton that we can learn from Jesus' answer. Uh, it's, it's very enlightening because one of the things that he does here, and you don't always get the chance to answer a biblical skeptic on their own terms, uh, but when you do have the opportunity to answer them simply by using their own terms on their own grounds, it can be highly effective, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. So what they're doing is undermining the teaching of the resurrection. And if I were trying to defend the teaching of the resurrection from the Old Testament, some of the first passages that I might turn to are passages from Daniel or Job or Psalms or Isaiah. But the problem with the Sadducees is they don't believe in those books as authoritative. So Jesus doesn't turn to those books. And he says, I'll meet you right where you're at. And you guys actually believe in the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and I'll meet you at Exodus. What happens in Exodus? In Exodus chapter 3, we get this spot where God comes to Moses and he's introducing himself to Moses and he says, here's who I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, you know why that's so interesting? The patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for at least four centuries by this point. So properly speaking, the thing that you think he would say that would be grammatically correct is, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, but that's not what he says. He says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. 
And what that means is if they have already physically passed away, then if he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must be continuing on in some level of existence. There must be some life after physical death. And so what Jesus is teaching the Sadducees here is, if you believe the books of Moses, as you say you do, then you need to start reading them a little bit more carefully because by your own authoritative teachings, you're misunderstanding Exodus because God says he is the God of the living and you really need to readjust your perception of the afterlife. It's a, it's a brilliant response to a very difficult question. And yet he doesn't leave it there. He also says, and I'm going to teach you something else to clarify some misunderstandings that you have about the afterlife. And what he says in verse 30 here is, at the resurrection... People will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, that, don't get too hung up on that marriage, getting married or being given in marriage. That's just, in that day and age, that's the male and female way of describing it. Men would marry and women, more passively at that time, would be given in marriage. But he's saying men and women in general Uh, at the end of all time, will not be married in the construct that we understand it, for they will be like the angels in heaven. Now here's the issue. A lot of people read that, and at first glance to them, it seems less enjoyable, less pleasurable, um, less desirable than maybe a really good marital experience here on earth. That seems more appealing than whatever it is that Jesus is describing there. And the problem with that is because we only are capable right now of thinking in in temporal earthly categories and we don't understand eternal existence and the implications of that. Here's what I mean. Uh, One implication of eternity is the fact that when we get into eternity, people don't die. Okay? There's no sin, there's no hurt, there's no suffering, and there's no death. People do not die. Now, one of the reasons why people procreate here on earth is to do what? Part of the reason we procreate is to replace the dead. If there becomes no reason for the earth repopulating itself, why would there be any reason? If there's no death, why would there be any reason for population? See, the the whole birth is part of the survival instinct of the human species. What happens if we get to a place where death is not possible? The procreation instinct, relatively speaking, reasonably speaking, might drop away. Now, that has nothing to say. That doesn't really tell us anything about sex or about gender or about anything like that. And, And that would all be, like, highly speculative. But if we go with what we actually do know on the basis of what's here, there's no death which means there's no need for continued procreation and continued population. And there's also no sin, which means that any relationships that we have here would necessarily, by definition, have to be better there. See, what Jesus is teaching to the Sadducees here is he's teaching a life that is richer, it's fuller, it's more wonderful, it's more beautiful, it's an immortal experience, and it's a loving relationship with everyone in heaven, the brothers and sisters in Christ, with no restrictions and with no jealousies and with none of the hurts of earth. Believers will function as a perfect family and as the bride, bride of Christ, and therefore there will be no shortage of love, no shortage of support, no shortage of intimacy and no shortage of friendship. It's a better life in every way imaginable. And yet, the seed of the the Sadducees' question is still a fair one. 
it's still a legitimate concern that believers still have today. It's a practical question. What if I'm married to somebody that I really care a ton about? What then in eternity? The idea of losing that person. Well, remember, marriage is a construct for a relationship that God gives us in this particular time and space. But if we don't change who we are in heaven. If Abraham is still Abraham and Isaac is still Isaac and Jacob is still Jacob and you are still you and your spouse is still that same person. In other words, you do not get stripped of your individuality. That means that relationships with people don't just go away, including relationships uh, as far as people that we know and love like a spouse here on earth. In fact, what we do know is if there is no sin in heaven, that relationship will be far superior to the best possible relationships that we can experience here on earth. Now, what that means then, because I get this question all the time and I understand it. My loved one passes away and I want to know this person again. And if this person passes away in Christ, you will know this person for all eternity. That's an absolute promise. I'm not exactly sure what label you can put on it, but I guarantee whatever relationship you have with them now, it will be better there because it will be a relationship without any sin. And that also helps you make sense of, by the way, I've counseled a number of people who have multiple believing spouses who have passed away. My own uh, great-grandmother had several husbands pass away. She loved each of them, and each of them were believers in Christ. So how does that work once you get to heaven? What will happen? Will there be any jealousy amongst these guys? What will the relationship be like? No. Because exclusivity, think this through very carefully, exclusivity is necessary on earth in in part because of the sinful nature that we all possess. It, exclusivity is necessary because of the sin of jealousy. But what if you get to a place where there can be no sin? Then the pre- situation that I just presented with my own great-grandmother, that's not a problem for anybody. Okay? Um, I get that it would be interesting to kind of go down the wormhole and think out a bunch of other implications to that. And if we were doing our small groups right now, I guarantee we'd talk a whole lot about that. But a lot of it would be speculation, and so I don't want to spend our last five to ten minutes on speculation. What I do want to say is the real lesson that's going on here, the real issue. And I think when you first read through this lesson, uh, you might think that the Sadducees' main issue is they don't believe in the resurrection, or the Sadducees don't believe in angels, or the Sadducees don't maybe believe in some kind of traditional marriage structure or something like that. That is not their real issue. Uh, The real issue is beneath that. In fact, spiritually speaking, the real issue is always beneath the symptomatic issue. I know this whenever I counsel people. um, Whenever they come in with a problem and I'm struggling with this about God or I'm struggling with this in my life and what we do is we go through some behavioral uh, potential adjustments on that thing to relieve some of the tension. But we always then go to what is the actual issue underneath the issue? Because remember, Satan's whole means of operating is he is a deceiver. So he gets you to think one thing is the issue while underneath the surface the real issue is actually at the root and lurking. What is the real root issue lurking underneath the Sadducees? Fortunately, we don't even really have to guess about it here because Jesus spells it right out in verse 29. It's not the issue of resurrection. It's not the issue of angels. It's not the issue of marriage. It's what? Verse 29 says, Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. That's the problem. The Sadducees don't know their Bibles and they don't trust the portions of their Bibles that they do know. 
You don't know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. And in case there's any, that, that phrase power of God might seem a little uh, vague and ambiguous to us at first. And so what we do is we let scripture interpret itself and say, okay, what does the phrase the power of God mean elsewhere? Well, the number one spot I can think of for power of God, it's in Romans chapter 1 when the apostle Paul is writing. And in, in cha- verse 16 of Romans 1 he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And therefore, what is Jesus saying about the Sadducees? You don't know your scriptures very well and you don't understand the good news that comes through me. You don't know what I'm earning for you in eternal salvation and you don't know the power that that inevitably unleashes into the life of somebody who believes it. Jesus is teaching us here that there is an afterlife that is so full, it is so powerful that it trumps every possible experience that we could ever have here on earth. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what the Lord has in store for those who love him. In heaven, we will still be ourselves and Abraham will be Abraham and Jacob will be Jacob and the people that you love who die in Christ will still be the people that you love and you will still be you. There is a depth of love enjoyed by the family of God that will completely dwarf the most uh, ecstatic, intimate moments, the most wonderful and beautiful and harmonious relationships that exist in the best possible marriages here in human history. No mind has conceived what God has in store for his people who die in Christ. Now, the question is, are you using that as a real power in your life today? If you know that that happens then, how much is that impacting your life right now? And that's the real lesson of this whole deal. The lesson that we have here today is, let me summarize it like this. If God and God's word and God's gospel, if that is not the authority of your life, it is not as though you will not have an authority in your life. It's that you will have a worse authority in your life. And I'll even tip my hand here and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I think it's fairly obvious. The default authorities of somebody who lives in 2019 in the United States, your default authorities, if it's not God and God's word, it's going to be your own personal feelings and the norms of your culture. I guarantee. These are the non-conscious default positions that every human living in the 21st century America slips into if they don't consciously choose a different authority in their lives. It's part of the reason why when I ask people what they believe, they first start out typically by saying something along the lines of, well, I I just feel like... uh, God would not, or I just feel like God would do this. Or Notice how different it is to say something like, because I just feel like my Redeemer lives, versus I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you understand the difference in those two testimonies? The person who wrote, I know that my Redeemer lives, they weren't just feeling some kind of internal, additional feeling of conviction to write those words. No, they weren't using their feelings as a conviction. They were using eyewitness testimonies recorded in the historicity of the Gospels and saying, that is what is going to be the authority in my life, not my feelings. The I know that my Redeemer lives does not come out of strong personal feelings of conviction. It becomes out of belief in the authority of eyewitness testimony. See the difference? If you don't consciously choose the Bible as your authority in your life in all matters, you will default to your feelings or to cultural norms. And I'm not even going to spend, again, too much time convincing you that that's not a good authority in your life. Because you don't even accept it as authority in anybody else's life. If you thought somebody else had their personal feelings or cultural norms as the way they lived their life, the main MO of their life, you'd say that's not healthy. 
Uh, you can look at, for instance, a drug addict. A drug addict feels very strongly that they need more drugs. Everybody else would say the last, person, last thing on earth that guy needs is drugs. An alcoholic would say desperately, I need another drink. I feel like I need another drink. The last thing that guy needs is another drink. A sex addict would say, I feel like I need to consume some kind of pornography or whatever else. And everybody else would say the last, person, last thing that guy needs is pornography in his life. Now, if you can look into an addict's life and say they should absolutely not be doing what they feel is authoritative in their lives, what makes you think that you and I and our feelings are that much more in tune with the truth? Why should we rest on the laurels of our authority, uh, authoritative feelings that much more? You can't always trust the feelings. Feelings are good things, but they cannot be authoritative things. And the same thing is true with cultural norms. If you don't consciously choose the Bible as your authority, you will guaranteed just drift into whatever society does. Well, how does that tend to work out? If you look across the landscape of humanity uh, in our country alone, what do relationships turn out to be? I think relationships turn out to be broken and consumeristic. If you look at the sociology of our country, what do we turn into? I see uh, segregated, splintered, and classist people groups. If you don't consciously choose otherwise, you will just drift that direction. Psychologically, what do I see? A lot of young adults at historically unprecedented rates struggling with anxiety, depression, and, and historically weird spikes in suicide rates. If you don't consciously choose a different authority, this is where we drift. And so what Jesus is saying to us in our lesson today is, place yourself under his authority. Place yourself under the authority of a living God with a living and active word who is, in fact, the God of the living. It's Tuesday of Holy Week and Jesus is telling the Sadducees, you know, very soon I am going to die and I am going to rise. And all you have to do is turn from sins, turn to me. Trust that I am your Lord and Savior from sins. That's all you have to do is trust in me. Believe in me. And because I live, you too will live. And that will unleash not only a new future for you in heaven, but that will un unleash an extraordinary power for you in the present. Is that impacting your life that way right now? By the way, I use this example uh, couple times a year, but it's, I haven't thought of a better example yet, and there's not a better preaching example for thinking through what does future reality change present circumstances. Uh, the example of two guys who have the exact same job. So I know two guys working in a GM automobile manufacturing plant, and they work on the assembly line, and every day they have the exact same job. They screw a nut on a bolt day after day after day after day. Ten hours a day, five days a week, 50 weeks a year. The only difference between the two guys is that they're contracted for two very different amounts. Unbeknownst to one another, guy A is contracted for $25,000 a year. Guy B is contracted for $25 million a year. So they start their job two weeks into the labor. Uh, it's Friday, right before their first paycheck, and they go together into the break room, and they're t sitting down and talking to one another, and guy A says to guy B, I don't think I can do this anymore. This is terrible. I'm on my feet all day. My shoulders hurt. My back hurts. Uh, it's loud out there. I'm underappreciated by my bosses. I'm bored out of my mind. I can't do this. And guy B responds by saying, I don't know. I don't think it's all that bad. What's the difference between those two guys? Don't say money. Yes, money, but the anticipation of what is coming to you in the future drastically impacts your perception of your present circumstances. 
the promises of God and the anticipation of what the gospel releases into your life for all eternity drastically impacts your perception of your present circumstances and your ability to deal with those present struggles. Are you using the gospel in your life today that way? Me neither. Not very well. Not as well as I would like. In fact, this past week I was on the, I I do video chats with my mom every day. Well, every other day since my dad has passed. And uh, it's been, you know, about two weeks of this. Every other day we do these and every, every time we talk I I want to know how she's doing and I ask her how she's doing and I say, Mom, did you get to the bank today? Did you take care of this? Are you eating okay? Are you doing these things? It's very different from the conversations that I had with her prior to my dad's passing. Prior to my dad's passing, a lot of the time uh, our conversations would devolve into me complaining about something in my life. Because they're my parents and they love me and they let me vent and I would just complain about whatever wasn't working the way I wanted it to work in my life. But these past two weeks, I've known better. And I've thought, nope, this conversation has to be about mom. So I'm, I'm asking mom how she's doing and whatever. This past week, I had a little bit of a slip up. And I had a particularly bad day and I'm talking to my mom and, uh, you know, I'm just, I go off and I vent for 20 minutes on what is not working in my life the way that I want it to be working. And she very graciously, very humbly, very attentively sort of nods and, and lovingly listens. And when it's all said and done, we each say, I love you, and we say goodnight, and, and we hang up. And then the next morning, I check my messages. And the very first message that I open is from my mom. And she says, James, kind of scolding me, but in a good way, you need to practice what you preach. You need to forgive that person. And you need to let this go. Um, She was right. She was totally right. Now, see, my mom has a little additional perspective now that my dad has passed away, and she has been forced to think in terms of eternity all the time, every day. And that eternal perspective has caused her to say, yeah, you should be forgiving people a lot more, shouldn't you? Is the heaven-bound trajectory of life giving you a bottomless and limitless resource to manage the struggles that you are currently facing? Because that is the power that the gospel unleashes into your life. She was saying your present struggles, your present frustrations, your present grudges that feel like big deals are not worth comparing to the joy that you have in store in Christ Jesus. She was right. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila once said, the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. I love that. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has forgiven you for not knowing your Bibles perhaps as well as you should know your Bibles. But he doesn't want you to stay there. Jesus has forgiven you for maybe you know what your Bible says, but you don't always trust it and you don't always believe it and you don't always function out of it. Uh, All of us struggle with that. Jesus has fully, freely, totally forgiven you for all of that too. And for that matter, Jesus has also forgiven you for every time that you have defaulted into trusting more your feelings than anything else or trusting the norms of culture and drifting into those rather than remembering the gospel and living out of the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus has completely through his blood forgiven you for all of that. But he also says, I've raised you to a new life and I want you to get up and leave that old way behind. Jesus always knew and always trusted his father's word and his father's will, but... He loved us enough 
to die in our place. And he died so that we who haven't always trusted or lived according to the word would still be forgiven and would be raised to a new life. And that new life doesn't just happen when we get to heaven. He's raised us even to that new life right now. And now is the time to put away the old authorities and live according to that eternal trajectory. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, by your grace and through your blood, you have freed us from all sin and you have raised us to a new life. And as we come to your table tonight, help us to be renewed in our minds with the eternal trajectory bought for us by the blood of Christ. It's in your name we pray, amen.